You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Listener, this is part one of a two-part series on the many crimes of science fiction authors. And let's not sugarcoat it. The sexual abuse of children committed by science fiction authors. We're going to talk about the Science Fiction Writers of America, the SFWA, how I feel they're hypocrites, how the image the SFWA has cultivated doesn't gel with the facts, Monstrous people that have been given the prestigious title of Grandmaster and never denounced for their evil. And look, a lot of you may be asking, who is the SFWA? Why should I care? Yes, while the SFWA is a shell of its former self, with most of their active roster releasing books doomed for the free with Kindle Unlimited section on Amazon, they do hold a place in science fiction history. An important place at that. And it doesn't change the fact that current sitting leaders are front-facing arbiters for social justice while simultaneously, conspicuously quiet on one of their current grandmasters being a proud supporter of the North American Man-Boy Love Association, or NAMBLA. Oh, and maybe conspicuously quiet doesn't quite do it justice. 
rubbing shoulders with a pro-pedophile in photographs. Listener, to add to the already strange circumstances regarding this episode, I think it's worth noting that I received near instant blowback from members of the SFWA when I announced my interest to cover this subject. And I'm not joking, my Twitter mentions were full of people pre-angry to the idea that I would be shining a light on this dark history. And I've never, never once experienced that before. And my history, my long history of doing this show, I have never had instantaneous criticism on covering such a subject. Now, you may be asking yourself, why would they be upset before Justin even releases the episode? I mean... Covering child abusers, I mean, that's a part of covering true crime, right? And to that listener, I'll say that legally, you should figure that one out on your own. Come to your own conclusion on why they would seek to halt the creation of this episode. I'll have to leave that one up to you. I'm sorry. But on a totally unrelated note from that last paragraph I spoke... One of the champions for the SFWA that Kool-Aided his way into the discussion on child sexual abuse is SFWA member Patrick S. Tomlinson. This guy cried and squealed his way into my mention for days. More people saw his profuse whining about my SFWA coverage than likely read one of his terrible recycling fodder books. It got to a point that someone wrote an article about his rolling around in the mud One of his little buddies actually went into my DMs and requested my docs. Another first for creating an episode. I have never, ever in my history of working on this show had a potential subject of the podcast demand my address. So, after taking on this project, I knew a challenging part would be deciding exactly how to deliver this information. There is so, so much... And the thing is, I need you on board, because by the next episode, we're going to be discussing a lot of sacred cows, a lot of authors that both you and I have probably enjoyed over the years. And honestly, it's distressing. It sucks. It's okay to like things, but sometimes the things that you like were created by people that weren't so good. In fact, they were pretty awful in their personal life. So the picture I'm going to be painting of them isn't going to be a pleasant one. And to get you on board today, we're going to hear from Moira Grayland, someone who was victimized by her parents that were staggering figures in their field. Moira's mother, Marion Zimmer Bradley, was a legendary author and feminist icon in the field of both fantasy and science fiction. I'm sure many listening to this now have read her novel, The Mists of Avalon. Maybe you even have it on your shelf right now, listener. Maybe it's a favorite. Moira's father, Walter Breen, authored the book Walter Breen's Complete Encyclopedia of U.S. and Colonial Coins. In the world of coin collecting, he was, and even after his death, is considered an authoritative voice on coin collecting. I read Moira's book, and she gives a lot of great and extensive detail on her parents. She gives them a far more fair shake than they ever deserved. And summing them up into these two paragraphs isn't the complete story. But there is a lot of information to go through here between this episode and the next episode. And realistically, they had to be boiled down to these two paragraphs before even getting into their crimes. 
But for now, I think it's important that we start heading towards the direction of the conversation I had with Moira. So, yes, there's more to their story, and we'll get into that today. But for now, I'm going to leave it up to Moira to tell you her story. Moira, can you tell the audience a little about yourself? <laughs> Certainly. Um, Moira Grayland, as you know, uh, most of what I do, uh, I'm still a professional performer. I play the harp and I sing various sorts of concerts and other events here and there. Um, but my primary passion actually is teaching voice and teaching the harp. And the reason I love teaching voice so much is because one thing that the events in my background did to me was essentially silence me in every way imaginable. And singing, although it was initially something I very much didn't want to do, it was something I was more or less required to do, teaching other people to sing has been intensely freeing. I love teaching people to sing because they find out that not only can they express themselves, but they can do so easily, beautifully, in a way that they don't have to worry about. Other than that, uh, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I've got children, I've got grandchildren, lots and lots of each. <laughs> I, have a, I have my own children, I've got stepchildren, I've got step-grandchildren, um, and then I've got students and grandstudents, and probably great-grandstudents by now, <laughs> because a lot of my, my students have gone on to teach and have done beautifully for themselves. A lot of them perform, of course, but a lot of them also teach. How long have you taught the harp and singing? A very long time. I've been a professional performer. Well, frankly, I've been a professional performer since I was nine years old, but I've been performing professionally as harpist and singer since 1990, so that's a very long time. Um, I've been teaching almost that long, and so lots of students, lots of grand students, um, at the moment, I have a few health challenges. My my situation with asthma since COVID has been quite quite dreadful, and it's uh, it's affected my stamina. Um, other than that, in the last 10, 15 years, a lot of what I've done, frankly, is I've founded amateur opera companies and trained all the singers and put on operas, always in English, so that the uh, audience will get the joke. And uh, you could sort of say to a student, <laughs> do you have the performers? Do you have performances for your students? Yes, I do. It's called an opera company. <laughs> Despite what you've been through, it seems like you're in a good place now. Well, um, I think of it a little bit like having an amputation. That having an amputation is a truly terrible thing, and you do have to figure out how to live without having that part of your of your body or your soul working. Um, because really, um, the what I'm left with is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the same thing that you get if you went through the Vietnam War and were a POW and were tortured, um, is the same psychological situation. And it's, it's been extremely disabling. Um, however, throughout my life, um, and I saw this with the people that I was around, that there were those of us who had our pain and dealt with our pain by eating or cutting or whatever. And we've all done that stuff. And I've done crazy stuff too, to cope with my pain. However, I always had a show that I had to prepare for 
there was always a final exam to prepare for. There was always a performance that I had to get ready for. I always had something to do. And that's what kept me going. Whereas my brother, my late brother, I don't know if you know, but my brother Mark is passed now. Um, he passed three years ago. God rest his soul. And he didn't have he didn't have the same sorts of goals and he he was never as driven as I was. But but he was he was good and honorable and honest and kind and many, many good things. But the trauma more or less killed him because he didn't have anything to pull it out of it, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense to me. My brother and I were physically and sexually abused by my stepfather as children. I sought treatment and he didn't. He's not with us anymore. I'm so sorry. I understand. And I will lay my brother's left, my brother's death squarely at the feet of my mother, uh, just as, as I would the death of my oldest brother. Um, I'm the only one left. <laughs> and uh, I, I, don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's an accident. I really think in some cases it's a mortal injury, but uh, a lot of us managed to live a long time with it. <laughs> I, I hope that I hope that makes sense. I I see the Lord of the Rings and I see Frodo um, damaged by the ring and finally sort of put out to pasture, and uh, and I understand what it is to carry something that you can't carry and you can't get rid of it. Um, <laughs> if risking becoming melodramatic. Uh, but any, anyway, um, I suppose I am headstrong. And I think in a way, it, it, that could possibly be credited to my mother, who was always a very, very driven. Um, I don't know how clear it was in my book, how very prolific my mother was, that she had written um, oh, probably well over, I don't remember the total, but well over 100 books. And my my father, between his, his books and pamphlets and um, Encyclopedia entries, he had thousands and thousands and thousands of written works. Uh, some of them, of course, were very small, but still, I mean, they were both constantly working. I think my my father was up an average of 20 hours a day, and most of that was spent working. So I had, I had examples of workaholism on both sides, although my mother did occasionally. She'd write from 3 to 6 or 7 in the morning, and then she was pretty much done for the day by noon. Can you tell the audience who your mother was? My mother is the author of Marion Zimmer Bradley. She wrote The Mists of Avalon as well as a great many other books, notably the Darkover series. Um, she was one of the very early, most famous female science fiction writers. She was married to my father, Walter Breen, who was uh, probably the greatest authority on American half-cents in the world. He was a noted numismatist. Of course, he has, because of, because of his history, he has been disgraced and uh, is no longer regarded as such an authority, not because his scholarship was bad, but because his conduct was. Um, the thing that my mother did that was the best was that she mentored a great many young writers, including uh, Mercedes Lackey, of course, my Aunt Diana Paxson. There's a, a story I love about her and my Aunt Diana mm. that is that Diana wrote her first book and brought it to my mother. My mother read the manuscript, told her exactly what she thought, which was not kind. And after Diana dried off her tears, she went and rewrote the manuscript and sold it and the next one and the next one and the next one. 
So although she was not a gentle teacher, she was an effective one. Watching back interviews of your father, Walter Breen, I noticed that he always underdressed. Tie-dye shirts, sweatpants, clothes with holes in them. Was this an intentional decision to make a statement? Or was this just a part of his personality? Nobody dresses by, that way by accident. My father, his, his oddness of, of attire, some of it is crass enough that I'll spare you, but we'll, we'll just suffice to say that he did not own a, a great many garments, and uh, the ones that he wore were not laundered very often. Um, he pretended to not understand anything about fashion. Um, one thing that was a point of contention between the two of us is that when I started having recitals at school, I very much wanted him to attend. And of course, I wanted him to attend in the attire that one would attend a classical music concert. That is a suit. And, oh, he absolutely would not do that. No, he wanted to wear tie-dye. He wanted to wear shorts, polyester shorts, uh, and his sandals, no socks. <laughs> but no, his, his bizarre appearance was absolutely a matter of choice. And uh, of course, I can't really say that I have not been affected a little bit of that. I tend to wear very long dresses. <laughs> so I make... <laughs> and heck, I worked at the Renaissance Fair for years, so I dressed kind of strangely myself. So I really can't talk, uh, except that my clothes do actually get laundered. Hippies, <laughs> what can you say? Listener, it's at this point Moira and I start to discuss what her mother and father put her through, what they did to her, and what she still lives with today. While this information I consider very important and worth listening to, I should just say right now, if you are sensitive to this type of material, then I won't blame you for jumping ship. You'll have no judgment here from me. All right, let's get on with it. Growing up with my mother, what is the background is that my mother, um, we can trace things, I suppose, back to her father, whose sister drowned in a terrible accident, and her father became an alcoholic, and her father started raping her in the front seat of the car, of their, their truck. And uh, she decided at that point that she hated God because he didn't rescue her. And to make a very long story short, she married the first decent man who asked her, but then because he did things of that can be found in the book that she didn't like, she married my father, who was already an active pedophile, and she wasn't especially concerned about any of that because she made the incomprehensible leap from she is being raped by her own father, which is a crime against humanity, to all sex between all people is somehow fine. Um, she was not concerned about what my father was up to with little boys. Um, and that meant, unfortunately, um, there was somebody who came to me a couple of years ago and told me that they had overheard my father and mother discussing that the best way to have child victims who wouldn't cry and make a problem is to breed them. And I think the delusion that the two of them had was that if we were brought up to be accustomed to that sort of thing, we wouldn't mind. Just like training a dog, I suppose, except unfortunately... You can't, you can't train a, jo a dog to enjoy being beaten. By the time I was six years old, 
I was convinced that my parents were completely bananas. I didn't think that they were my real parents. I used to daydream, fantasize that my real parents would come down in the spaceship and take me away, crazy as that might sound. But I knew that the way my mother was acting wasn't the way a mother acted. Um, I'll only give a very few specifics because they will paint a picture of her state of mind. In my 20s, my mother came and told me that she had tried to beat me to death twice before I was six years old. As to those two beatings, the only recollection I have are flashbacks. And uh, the reason she told me this is because she wanted me to sympathize with her for how terrible it was to deal with a child as evil as I was. And I cannot to this day, being that I'm a mother of three boys and I know what children are like and I know what they do. I can't imagine calling any of my children evil. I can't imagine calling any child evil. I mean, she was not able to tell me what I did that was so bad to justify her trying to kill me twice. And it makes no sense to me why she would want me to sympathize with her for trying to murder me. And yet that is what I live with. If that perhaps paints a picture of how she felt about what she did. I've written pretty graphic accounts. If you got to the end of chapter 10, um, I, I almost hope you didn't read the last page of chapter 10 because it's the worst part in the book. It's, uh, the chapter is called The Nurse and the Lunatic, and it describes an event involving a bathtub where my mother was forcing me to do something to her that I did not want to do, and she was using the hot water and pushing my head underwater as a way to compel me. Um, I put... I put... I, I did... Um, the audiobook and that particular page I kept re-recording it because I kept finding myself shrieking instead of talking it's hard to talk about obviously but suffice to say I was meant to be a sexual servant to the two of them and I'll never forget my father when I was five years old and my mother had gone to a, convic a convention and he had raped me afterwards and it was all over he was so disappointed he was so angry because he thought that I would like it and I would want it and I would melt into his arms and everything would be fine and instead I was crying and pulling away and shrieking and acting betrayed and not wanting to talk to him and running away from him and being frightened. And As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. 
Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because... You know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. 
This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. Not being able to talk to my mother about it when she got home and she was horrible about it, although she didn't quite admit that she knew what had happened. Um, it seems that his entire goal with me was to have somebody who would appreciate the amazing freedom that he had meant to give me. And instead I had been just like all the other kids and cried and screamed and tried to get away instead of understanding what he was trying to do. And so I have firmly in my mind that I have disappointed him. And as an adult, as an adult, I'm okay with that. But as a child, I certainly was not. And I think part of my endless red shoes, my endless workaholism, was simply knowing how much of a disappointment I was to him and to my mother. And if I can't do that for them, well, maybe I can produce something that they'll like and that'll be almost as good as doing the thing I don't want to do. The thing perhaps that changed the most dramatically about me though through the course of these things was that where my mother was belligerent and unpleasant, my father was much more reserved. I became belligerent and unpleasant. I assigned to myself the role of protector that I would protect anyone who was in trouble. And I would get between my mother and anyone she was trying to hurt. I would deliberately antagonize my mother. And my brother, he thought I was crazy for antagonizing her because she just hurt me. But I didn't care. I identified very much with Wesley from The Princess Bride talking to Humperdinck saying, Death first! No, I will not be conquered. No, you will not have the last word. No, you will not win. No, I will not be submissive. No, I will not be dominated by you. And where I found out very much too late in the game that my brother had been compliant with her because he felt that she would hurt me if he wasn't compliant. That certainly put a very different spin on things because if I had known that, if I had known that he was doing that to protect me, I don't think I ever would have fought with her. But I also didn't want to be scared like he was. He was normal. He wasn't like me. He was just scared. And instead of being a driven workaholic like I was, he just he just withdrew. Also, because I got involved at the Renaissance Fair, I was able to get away for 30 weekends a year, thank God. And then... As soon as I was able to make good enough friendships, I started staying on people's couches and, you know, spending as much time during the week away as I possibly could. Where he was home, he was always there. And although she didn't beat him, she sure, at least I never saw her beat him. That doesn't mean she didn't. It just meant I never saw it. She beat me in front of anyone. She didn't care. And he was, I think really he ended up with a great deal of survivor's guilt because he 
got to listen to me scream. And I, I know now from unfortunate experience, I know that sometimes survivor's guilt is worse. It's worse than actually going through it. Because at least antagonizing her and getting beaten up, I felt like I had some, some part, some responsibility. In sharp contrast, where my father sexually violated me and continued to try to do so until I was about 18, um, tried. Um, he didn't physically abuse me. My father only hit me once, and I felt I deserved it because my father hit me for biting my brother. And so I felt I was, I was to blame. I had bitten him. My father backhanded me across the room, and it made sense because I had done something wrong. But most of the time that my mother had beaten me or had done other crazy things to me, drawn blood on the back of my hand with her fingernails, whatever she was up to, I didn't feel that I had done anything to deserve it. I did not understand why she was doing it. And I do think that we are born with a sense of justice and fairness. We know when we've done something wrong that we deserve to be punished for. And I certainly have done my share of wrong things. But so much of what she did just made no sense at all. It made no sense. It was more like she was punishing me because she wanted to punish me, not because I'd done anything that she needed to punish me for. I didn't feel that I was being taught. I wasn't being instructed. I wasn't being corrected. I wasn't being disciplined. I was just being pounded on. And it made so little sense. Um, to give an idea of how things were between us when I was an adult, again, this is, it's a little bit cracked, but I had decided that she needed people more than just her person, Lisa, who went from being her lady love to her a secretary and then calling herself her cousin. And so I spent a lot of time with my mother, even though I felt she was dangerous and unpleasant. And that came to an end when we came home from some excursion or other and my neighbor handed me the remains of my kitty cat who had been hit by a car. And I cried and my mother laughed at me. And to me, that was just, that was just the end of what I could handle. But I thought that that was extremely bizarre. Not so much that she would laugh when I cried, although that was bad enough, but that she would be so callous about the death of an animal. That just, that just struck me as so horrendous. Obviously, I'm alive. I have my limbs. I have my fingers and toes. But what I really haven't had is peace of mind. And we're, I'm very glad to be like, like the Lady of Shalott in the early painting where she's, she's wearing her peacock blue dress and she is in the middle of all these threads and webs that she's weaving like I am in my sewing room, although I hope that's not hopelessly obscure. Um, it's great to be creating. It's wonderful to be creating. But all the creating is on the top agitation and pain that simply does not stop. And I do not want to hand my mother my life, but there are times that I feel that I am simply treading water. In your mind, which is the greater evil? 
The person who loses control like your mother and seems incapable of controlling herself at times? Or a person like your father, who is in complete control, but still rationalizes his awful acts? Yeah, it was very deliberate. And something that may shed a little bit of light on that is, I don't know if you remember the part of the book about him that talked about the super kids, that he was involved with Dr. Sheldon. And that I'm pretty sure that these genius kids that he was grooming for uh, or mentoring, quote unquote, uh, since at least one of them, um, Bachelor, Robert Bachelor, ended up at, well, Robert Bachelor is the owner of Oliver Press. That was one of his <clears throat> groomed super kids. And Oliver Press is the publication house that published Greek Love, which is his treatise on pedophilia. So he wasn't the lunatic that my mother was. My mother was the type who would lose her mind and do something crazy all at once. And so we all lived in terror of her, of her moods. But with father, everything was deliberate. It was deliberate, it was careful, it was premeditated. Um, when I was five years old and he raped me, he was screaming that I was his birthday present and he was chasing me through the house. But it was, it was my belief that he was using some sort of hallucinogen and that part of the way he was acting, not the crime that he committed, but just his emotional wackiness was because of whatever drug he was taking at the time. Hallucinogens are something that he did very, very regularly. So mother was impulsive, but he was, he was positively calculated. And one of the ways you could know how calculated it was, for example, is when he would have boys over to give them pot and talk and try to get them to lower their inhibitions. And then if I was around, he would completely lose his mind because he knew that if they spent time with me, that he wouldn't have a shot. It's almost like the spell that he was putting on them only worked if nothing reminded them of the rest of the world. Well, what you mentioned is it's actually something I've thought about a lot. And I would say that the, the, the answer that I came to is not direct but indirect. Neither one of them ever, ever apologized for a single thing they had ever done, not once, not once. And if they knew they had committed evil, if my mother had committed evil when she was feeling a particular way and then she came to her senses, you'd think she would have apologized if she had regarded what she was doing as evil. So that's really the only thing I can come to there. There was an episode I probably described in the book where we had, we had been driving home from San Francisco and I think it was from San Francisco. Anyway, we were driving somewhere and I was still a a child. I think I was like 10, 11, 12 in there somewhere. I put everything in the book, so it's not in my head anymore. (laughs) And she had, reached back and backhanded me in the face again. 
And I reminded her that she had promised to not hit me anymore. And uh, more than that, she had actually said to me that if she ever hit me again, I could hit her back. And uh, so we got out of the car and she stood there expecting me to hit her. And it was at that moment that I lost all respect for her because I know that decent people don't hit their mothers. And in her assuming that I was the kind of person who would hit my mother, who would hit my mother, that she obviously didn't know me at all. And so I, I felt that it was that moment I lost respect for her. But in retrospect, what you're saying applies. Um, she didn't apologize for hitting me. She just gave me the opportunity to hit her back, which is preposterous. As you grew older, did you experience gaslighting from your parents? Or was this a secret that existed below the surface between you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I was gaslighted. The only people in my life who ever accused me of false memory syndrome were her and Isaac Bonowitz. Isaac Bonowitz, who I didn't discuss a great deal in the book, but they called him the pagan pope. And uh, what distinguishes him from my mother, though, is that Apparently, after he had kids, he started apologizing to some of his victims. He didn't apologize to me. Of course, the last time I saw a photograph of him, I went into flashbacks for many hours. Uh, I wouldn't have appreciated him trying to talk to me. But uh, he was a very bad guy. And uh, to, to, to paint one picture of him, he had been accused by enough people of sacrificing babies. I know that sounds completely bananas. It does sound completely bananas, but I have to say it because these accusations had happened to him sufficiently often that he laughed about them on his website. He included a chapter that he, he called Curses Broiled Again. And he actually made fun of people who accused him of sacrificing children. He sued one of his victims for slander, I am told. I don't remember who it was. And he lost but it seems to me that that is hardly justice. There were just there were just too many of us, too many of us. And even so, the principal other one of his victims, who I was aware of, who I spoke to, other than my brother, um, she decided that she didn't want to speak out, and so I didn't include very much about him in the book because my rule for myself had been that I would only include things that I had two witnesses for. So this one's hard to describe, but when I lost my brother, it felt like I experienced two losses. Of course, I lost him as a person, but I also lost one of the only people to witness what we'd been through. One of the only people I could relate to on this level, even if it went unspoken, did you experience this sense of loss, this feeling, when your brother passed? Yes, I did. There was a there was a card my oldest brother David had sent me some years ago, where I, I thought it was quite hilarious. My brother David was shockingly intelligent, and he referred to our mother who aren't in heaven. Hollow be her fame. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and his description of me, <laughs> he described me as being like a small gray kitten with its claws stuck in the ceiling. 
just a just a small a small and furry and always very much on my guard with my backup and my claws out. Reading your book, I could feel the affection you felt for your brother. I'm glad. My my brother who is nearer to me, Mark, who died three years ago, God rest his soul, he well, as as noted in the book, he didn't speak to me for some years because he didn't understand at the time that I had put our father in prison because our father had been committing crimes. Denial was powerful. But then once I finally managed to break through and get him to talk to me, we were best friends for about 10 years. We palled around. He let me teach him to sing. He sang with my opera company. We had a grand time. It was wonderful. And so it was a wonderful 10 years that I, I wish had not ended. It's like a piece of your history can never be discussed anymore. Um, when things started to get very strange in 2014, when I, I wrote my blog post and it went viral, um, it was all quite, it was all quite accidental. Um, I answered a couple of questions from a blogger. It was very shattering to my brother because he had pretty much dealt with the entire business with our father through denial. And what happened with my blog post and all the public attention is that he started having flashbacks about my father. And that was absolutely not something he was prepared for. He never forgot what our mother had done to him, although he literally could not talk about it, as in literally not figuratively, could not, could not get the words out. And I understand that because I've been there too. Yeah, there was a time I couldn't talk at all. I don't know if in the course of your research, you managed to find, it's almost impossible to find, um, the one thing that my brother was able to write about what happened to him. The pain in what he had written was palpable. It, it was like this gigantic thing hanging in the middle of the room. His agony was obvious. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. And yet he could, he could give very, very few specifics and fewer still about our parents. More the just atmosphere of utter terror that he was left with morning, noon, and night that just never left. Um, and I really, I really hope that you're able to locate that because it might help you understand your own experience through the lens of someone else who's gone through it and who has not found a way to talk about it. As for me talking about it, the, the only thing that I can say is that after Deirdre's blog post about this went viral and 
I started answering questions, people would write me letters telling me their life story, and most of them would start with the words I never told anyone before. And so I thought to myself that if my telling a little bit of my story would help people begin to come to terms with their own pain, then maybe if I told the whole story, I would be able to help even more people start to talk about what had happened to them. Moira and I talked about a lot, but one of the things that became clear to me is how difficult it was for her to write about her experiences and how it affected her life. I don't like admitting how badly it hurt me to write the book. It damn near killed me. And there were, there were times, I mean, my husband, who is now dead, God rest his soul, Michael, um, he sat with me every single day while I wrote that thing. And then later on, when I was recording the audiobook and I was upstairs, this is going to sound almost brutal, but I was recording the audiobook and there were two sections of it. One was chapter 10, as I mentioned earlier, and the other was chapter 25, which actually was written by one of my father's other victims, Nick Boston. God, well, he's, he's still living, thank God, but he's been, he's been on methadone maintenance his whole life and he sees a counselor twice a week because of what was done to him by my father and my father's friends. Um, reading his reading his words, um, doing the audiobook of that and of chapter 25, I would be upstairs recording and my husband would be sitting downstairs and he would begin to hear me shrieking and he would come to the bottom of the stairs because he couldn't just leap up the stairs anymore. He was getting on and he would bellow up the stairs, that's enough, that's enough, stop! It sounds, it sounds callous but it would jolt me out of it. I'll try and paint one more picture just about the process of writing the book. When the book was done and I sent it off to the publisher, I went and I got myself breakfast at a restaurant to celebrate. And while I was at the restaurant, I noticed that I had become agoraphobic. And getting home was quite a production. I took side streets and back streets and I drove very, very slowly and I remember thinking to myself, no, 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 no. I am not going to give in. I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to give way. I'm not going to let any more ground be lost to this thing. I'm not going to become agoraphobic. I'm not going to have this in my life. And it took several months of forcing myself to go outside, forcing myself to drive on the street, forcing myself to drive on larger streets, finally forcing myself to drive on the freeway. That was exactly what kind of an impact the book had on me. It took me from, well, I can't really say ordinary PTSD patient because, I mean, PTSD is a, it's a pretty horrendous thing. It's pretty disabling, and there isn't a day that it is not part of my functioning. Um, but it is no joke to not be able to drive anymore. And I was absolutely determined that I was not going to allow that to be the end of my story. But that's what, that's what writing this book did to me. Okay, how to word this. Moira, when I first tweeted out that I was considering covering this subject, I experienced a lot of blowback by members of the SFWA. What's your opinion on the behavior of these SFWA members and certain authors within their group? Unwillingness to denounce someone who is pro-NAMBLA. The thing is, it's very easy to denounce pedophilia if you disapprove of it. 
Yeah, I'll just let that hang there in the same way that Brick Stone, as Douglas Adams would say. I used to be a regular featured performer at Baycon, Westercon, Worldcon. I used to play harp concerts at all of these places. But for some reason, I never get asked around anymore. Could it possibly be that I wasn't supposed to say something about my mother? It was all very well to entertain me and show me off and, oh, here is the harp playing daughter of Mary Miller Bradley. Wow! As, as though having me there would make them feel closer to my late mother. But all of a sudden, when I said what my late mother had actually done, all of a sudden the phone is no longer ringing. Uh, actually, the part that's a little bit baffling is that these were my friends. These were people I thought cared about me. There was the occasional person who really does care about me and really does care about my brother. And even people, a very few people who saw what was going on and were desperately worried. And nobody, nobody said anything. You were, I'm sure you found your way to the brain dog, right? And so you, what you saw is that my father was essentially doing performative art with a three-year-old girl, if you can call molesting a girl in public as art, but that he had so so few scruples about what people would see him doing that he did this in front of people. And nobody could quite figure out what to do about it, that there were one or two couples who hated him and wanted him dead and ordered their children to barricade themselves in the room if he ever came over. Even so, that's a far cry from saying he will never come over. I mean, it's, it's an it's one thing to say, barricade yourself in your room. It's another thing entirely to say, I will not have this person in my house for all tea in China. And if you want to have him around, I will not be around because we're not going to play with felons. We're not going to play with criminals. We're not going to play with a person who is obviously damaging children. The feeling, as I'm sure you're already aware of some variation of this, oh, we're all strange in this space, therefore we've all been rejected as poor strange misfits. And we can't reject another misfit because, because we're all poor strange misfits. And they're just misunderstood. Uh, no. Because the thing is, some poor strange mis- misfits are, in fact, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. Or, for that matter, the Walter Greens, who have less of a body count. But the thing is, it takes a lot longer for them to kill. Moira, is there anything you'd like to tell the audience? I don't, I don't know if my mother and father sat around talking about including pedophilic relationships in their books. But they sure did it. I don't know if they speak about this in simple behind closed doors, but the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter whether they are speaking about it in closed doors and having secret meetings about pedophilia. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they're writing about it. What matters is that they're putting up with it because it doesn't matter if you have secret meetings, if you're okay with something being there. The quiet part, as it were, to say out loud, you know perfectly well that a lot of science fiction and fantasy is based on weird sex. Fantasy is mostly religion plus weird sex. Science fiction is religion and spaceships and weird sex. But um, unfortunately, it means science fiction is full of people who like weird sex. And when I say weird sex, I don't mean um, you know putting on a naughty maid's outfit <laughs> or having fur-lined handcuffs that, that are plastic. I, I don't mean that. I mean much, 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 much worse than that. There are so many child victims that isn't even funny. But I got to find out that we're really not supposed to talk about it. The rabbit hole you may not have gone the rest of the way down, and in a, in a sense, if you haven't, I'm glad, is 
that if you follow that rabbit hole, they'll say, well, pedophilia is irrelevant because it's not about pedophilia. It's about the rights of children to do what they want to do. And, and we, we grown up, we are educating them. We're enlightening them. We're, we're giving them access to, to really pursue their desires. Like, no, that's not reality, but it's the reality in their head. They do not want protecting children from being molested and raped because the idea is that it's only molestation and rape if we define it as that. They keep trying to legitimize pedophilia, but it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. Children will always suffer when having this done to them. It doesn't stop. The suffering doesn't change. You're not going to get parents in the developed world to accept it. You're not going to get people in, in the Western world to accept the slavery of children. But they keep sneaking up on it, but then they'll have a movie like Cuties, and what happens is it takes down the company, or mostly takes down the company because people are so outraged. It's not a divided opinion. They lost a tremendous amount of business. These things happen. They're horrible. They're crimes. But they can, they can want to legitimize pedophilia, and they keep trying, but it's not going to take. At least, in my opinion, it's not going to take, because par- parents just will not bend about this. We get very mad. However, there's something about that that I want to point out to you that hopefully will make you feel a little bit better about yourself as a part of normal humanity and the rest of normal humanity by extension. You didn't internalize it. You didn't adopt it as a good thing. You didn't recontextualize your own experience. You didn't decide that your own molestation or rape was a good thing. You didn't decide it was right. You didn't decide it was good. And so it's sort of like being shown something ugly and disgusting. You didn't conclude it was beautiful. Even though you didn't really register it, you read it, it sort of went past you, and then you were dimly aware of it. They put this stuff in books, but that doesn't make it okay. One of the things that people have said to me again and again and again about Mrs. of Avalon, about the scene where the little six-year-old girl was raped by the older man, and I, this stuff is in books, but we don't conclude it's okay. It's not becoming okay. The question is, do these freaks think it's okay? And when I say freaks, these are my people. These are the people I grew up around. But are these people who, if they had known that I was getting raped, they would have been like, oh, well, don't worry about it. She's just having a bad day or something crazy like that. Or would they have been like, we're calling the cops. We're getting you out of here. So which is it? Patrick S. Tomlinson. If you're listening to this, if you're hearing the fact that all your mudslinging and insults didn't stop me from covering this subject, this gross, disturbing subject about people who you refused to renounce when I asked you, people who I personally considered detestable, I want you to know that it is in my opinion that you are a disgusting person for defending these people. Children should be protected. I'm going to repeat that. Children should be protected. Not your desperate desire to find a publisher for your work-in-progress book no one on earth could possibly care about. It makes me question why someone like yourself, who writes books for babies, would, from my perspective, hate children so much. And let me tell you, Pat, no one, and I mean no one, could possibly care about your Reddit-tier, epic bacon, 12 years too late, book idea. A Tiny Tim revenge story 
was an awful idea when it was done many times before you wasted three years on it. Nothing you ever do is going to land. You always produce landfill material. And one day, 100 years from now, someone will find one of your books in an old used bookstore. They're going to flip to the back cover and see that embarrassing picture of yourself looking self-important and pointing to your temple. And they're going to say to themselves, I wonder who that guy is. He looks like a real blockhead. Now, for the rest of you, on part two, we're going to get into the weeds. What you've heard today is just the tip of the iceberg. I promise you that. Things run a lot deeper, but I don't want to play my whole hand here today. What I can tell you is that you're going to be shocked that this isn't more of a discussed topic. You may even start to question why that is. Why you haven't even been made aware of what you're going to hear, despite it being public knowledge, many of it. But for now, I'm going to wrap this up. So, I thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. Evil is always with us, but we are overcomers. And the reason that we talk about this is because when we talk about it, we embolden other people. And so just even talking about it can get somebody else to stay alive by getting them to begin to talk about what happened to them. And so the life you saved, you never know whose life you're going to save by talking about this. So please be aware that you're doing a good thing. That's all. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.